0: It's safe to say that 2020 is a year that will go down in history. One that will be discussed for centuries to come. One that will undoubtedly shape the very ways in which we design life. I am completely cognizant of the enormity of the spread of the coronavirus, as well as the very debilitating condition many individuals and families inflicted with it find themselves in. I am sensitive to all the hardship, turmoil and strife as well as the other long list of unseen effects that are brought on by mass disease and illness. I understand that short-term economic turmoil is far more damaging to the individuals who need a daily income for sustenance, and even the most minor of hiccups in the financial machinery can be disastrous for scores of family, each having its own trickle-down effect, each leading to an incalculable amount of despair, destruction and death. But This podcast is a good news podcast. Good news not because the rate of the virus growth is reducing with every passing day, which it is, which is great news, don't get me wrong, but good news because while the world seemingly comes to a stuttering halt, we're witnessing how even a minute retraction of our deeply polluting activities can lead to a rejuvenation of nature the likes of which haven't been seen for decades. Good news because the global action that we're witnessing, both from the high towers of government, as well as the relentless work of ground level NGOs and other civil society organizations, is truly emblematic of the spirit of human solidarity. Good news because together, one day at a time, we're winning, all of us. This episode is unique Much like the times we're living in, because I do not have a guest on today's show. That's right folks, I am bringing social distancing to podcasting. We'll find out if the results it has on my podcast are as encouraging as it has had on curbing the spread of the virus. I wouldn't bet on it though. What this episode is about then is two crises, COVID and climate, and how the lessons we're learning every day from combating one can be just as effectively used in combating the other, if not to a greater degree of success. This episode is about how at their core, COVID and climate are the same crisis. There are three main lessons that I have learned from the COVID crisis. First on collective action, second on individual action and lastly on inaction. Let's look at the first one, on collective action. By this of course I mean the kind of governmental initiative and action that we have seen across borders with governments and countries instituting economically challenging measures that were thus far deemed too extreme and radical and impossible to implement. We've seen it in countries like Italy and the USA albeit a little too late and we've seen it implemented with foresight and scientific temper in countries like Singapore and South Korea. Regardless, nearly every single government has had to take decisive, economically deleterious action that was otherwise deemed impossible. To think that a nation like India could seemingly come to a grinding halt, with industries, offices and factories shut, is a reality we never thought we'd see. And this has had effects that we simply could not have predicted for. Not only are we witnessing a flattening of the curve, a reduction in the overall late rate of growth of in individuals infected with the virus, but in fact states like Kerala are leading the global narrative in how to tackle an infectious virus like Covid. As an article by and Jacob points out, that the state has so far lost only 3 people to the infection. Of the 387 infected, 211 have recovered fully. On April 13th, it reported just two new cases. The state has a recovery rate of 84% compared to the rest of the country, which is at 14%. Bear in mind that this is a state that has had a considerable number of its youth studying in Wuhan, the epicenter of the pandemic, and was in fact one of the first states to report COVID cases in India. It is also the state that successfully dealt with the far more lethal Nipah virus in 2018. Incidentally, but not surprisingly, the health minister of Kerala, KK Shailaja, is one among a long list of women who have been far more successful in combating the COVID crisis as compared to male leaders and men in position of power. I mean, just look at a Jacinda Ardern versus a Donald Trump, and Angela Merkel versus a Jair Bolsonaro. A wonderful article published by Forbes, written by Aviva Wittenberg Cox, highlights how the policies of truth, love, decisiveness, and empathy have fared far better than whatever the quote unquote great men are peddling. Indeed, there's a lesson in this crisis on the role, on the key role of women in dealing with our inevitable future crises of climate change. And although I for one am of the firm opinion that we simply and unequivocally should ensure that more women are put in positions of power, I'll leave that issue to be discussed in another podcast on another day. For now, I think it suffice to say that patriarchy is very much a fundamental cog that pushes the machine of crises, and it needs to be done away with every chance we get. And I know it seems next to impossible right now, but you know what else we all thought was impossible? seeing clear skies in New Delhi. Remember just a few months ago when the air quality got so bad that it was quite literally off the charts? No, seriously, they had to come up with a new way of measuring how bad the air was because it was so bad. But as Jordan Davidson reports in New Delhi, the air pollution levels have dropped 71% in just one week. 71% in just one week. On March 20th, the air had an unhealthy 91 micrograms per cubic meter of particulate matter 2.5. On March 27th, just a couple of days into the lockdown, that level fell to 26 micrograms per cubic meter. Data from the Central Pollution Control Board of India's Environment Ministry also showed a 70% decrease in nitrogen dioxide levels. The amount of lives that are better off and healthier because of this reduction in air in air pollution has yet to be quantified. But if we take the recent research done by Stanford University, an estimated 77,000 lives were saved in China because of the reduction in air pollution there. We have no way of knowing how many lives of humans and indeed other species are better off because of this healthier air, because of the cleaner water, because of the less polluted land that the lockdown is resulting in. We are seeing a rejuvenation of nature, the likes of which we thought was simply Impossible, we're seeing the environment spring back to life in a way we thought was simply impossible. A simple shutdown of industry has led to a drastic improvement in the quality of the quote-unquote holy rivers of India, such as the Ganga and the Yamuna, which were erstwhile abused in the most unholiest of manners. Pictures are surfacing now of these and countless other rivers which show us that paradise was never lost. It was just deeply, deeply polluted. We are seeing rejuvenation of these rivers, the likes of which we have not seen despite innumerable orders and judgments from various levels of the judiciary, activism on the ground and, more interestingly, mind-boggling amounts of taxpayer money. By some estimates, over 25,000 crore rupees of your and my money has gone into rejuvenating the river Ganga. And nature has done it all for free. Maybe we really are the virus. The swift and decisive government intervention, although not without flaws of its own, which I will indeed discuss in another podcast episode someday, indicate two things. Firstly, that the government in the face of crisis can and should take action, and that secondly, such action can have positive effects. The way I see it then, in terms of lessons that we can apply to combating the the climate crisis, is we have two options. Either go the South Korea way or the way of the USA. Both these countries had their first confirmed cases of COVID on the same date, in late January. While South Korea began by tackling the problem head-on, being innovative with their solutions such as implementing drive through testing, which facilitated one of the highest per capita testing rates across the world, the USA floundered, to say the least. And like always, are now number one on the charts, much to their ch- chagrin though, The Trump's The Trump administration's daily briefings were characteristically overflowing with misinformation, racist rhetoric, and an ostensible disregard for the lives of millions of innocent Americans. Trump approached the COVID crisis the same way he approaches the climate crisis. He simply does not care if people die, if entire swaths of life are wiped from the earth. He doesn't care. His interests lie only with those in who he sees a personal monetary benefit. He wanted to reopen the economy by Easter weekend, for crying out loud. And if that isn't indicative of his priorities, then I don't know what is. South Korea, on the other hand, dealt with this problem with foresight and diligence. They realized that it is far more sensible to treat a problem as a catastrophe before it reaches catastrophic proportions. Such was, of course, based on an assessment that the scientific community had put out warning governments and informing them in advance about the possible effects of COVID, months in advance mind you. If only there were scientists warning the global community about the impending doom of climate change, which is inevitably going to wreak havoc on societies across the world. Oh wait, didn't some scientists say that? I think I remember reading something of that sort. Oh well, our lesson then is this. We can either act now when we have time on our hands, mitigate the inevitable catastrophe, face definite turmoil in the short term, but be much better off in the long run. Or we can wait it out, continue with business as usual, and then run pillar to post when shit starts hitting the fan. We can either see the writings on the wall, or we wait until the whole damn building collapses. The second lesson is in individual action. Much like climate, COVID is not something that can be dealt with solely by a system of governmental monitoring and intervention. It is simply impossible to depute those many police personnel anywhere across the world, especially in a country like India. The success of combating COVID then depends on the countless individuals such as you and me choosing to do the right thing, the scientifically proven, indisputably correct thing, things like joining and helping out medical communities, businesses ensuring that they are putting out quality products being delivered by healthy executives. Or simply staying put at home. Although it causes us temporary hardship, we need it for the greater good. Now a lot has been said against individual action in the realm of climate crisis. We have individual climate warriors who have fought polluting industries and big corporations their entire life, who have downplayed the role of individual action. And to some extent I completely agree with them that we need large scale reformative changes, that things have to change from policy perspective for there to be any kind of real change. Things like it doesn't matter if I take shorter baths, the meat and dairy industry consumes far more water than I'll ever save by taking shorter baths. Things like it doesn't matter if I drive an SUV instead of riding a cycle, because the numerous coal mines and thermal power plants are doing far more damage to the environment than my car ever will. And while I completely agree with this comparison, that a shorter bath is not going to save as much water as the meat and dairy industry consumes, that is beside the point. We cannot think of the climate crisis in such a singular dimension. Yes, shutting down the meat and dairy industry, or even imposing more stringent norms on water consumption by them, is indeed something we need to achieve. Don't get me wrong. But we have to ask ourselves, how will we ever find the political and social will to do that, unless we think about the climate crisis every time we want to go for a drive or take a shower? How will we ever reach the point where when elections come, society goes, Hey, I've been compromising on my beauty baths, I've been sweating it out on my cycle. So this candidate that I'm voting for better have an idea of how he or she is going to tackle the problem of an ever-depleting freshwater reserve or rising air pollution. How will we ever make the climate crisis central to a political agenda if we only think about it when it's convenient? We need to constantly think about how our, affection, how our actions are affecting the environment, much like how now we're thinking about how even our small actions would lead to an increase in the chances of us getting infected by COVID or spreading the disease further. We can't simply have political agenda based on debates and discussions of the economy and Hindu-Muslim politics and hope for our politicians and businessmen to somehow magically change their polluting ways. Now don't get me wrong. I am not devaluing either of those things, far be it from me to belittle economic reform or even a person's religious beliefs. All I am saying is that when we run out of fertile soil to grow food on, we can't simply start eating our money. All I am saying is that when the sea levels rise to a level of destroying entire civilizations, writing Jayashree Ram on stones is not going to keep us afloat. Because let's be honest, the climate doesn't give a hoot about our convenience. It's going to do what it's going to do based on the laws of physics, chemistry and biology, and not politics or market economics. I feel this is a good time for me to clarify an oft-quoted, well-intentioned, but deeply misguided phrase that, quote, we want to save the planet. I don't know if there was ever a statement more indicative of the hubris that floods our narratives as human beings. The planet has seen conditions far worse than we live in today. Around 4 billion years ago, the atmosphere was dense and the air was unbreathable, the seas full of high concentration of chemicals that would kill any human in a matter of seconds and indeed could support no life to begin with. But the planet survived all of it. What we need to do is change the narrative from the climate combat being something that is in the interest of Mother Earth and do something humans are incredibly adept at. Be really selfish. The only way we can be true to ourselves, the rest of the species that we share the planet with, and the Earth itself is by realizing that the climate crisis, much like the COVID crisis, is most harmful to us, us human beings, which is why we have to act now. Increasing salinity in our seas and lower oxygen levels aren't per se bad things, say if you were a jellyfish. They are ideal conditions to support your proliferation as a species. These things are harmful to us, it's a good time to be a jellyfish, and indeed a coronavirus too. They haven't seen such a massive takeover of the planet in the history of their existence. They too are technically wildlife, part of the planet, but we want only to eliminate them. Therefore, we need to reassess our situation, reprioritize what we want to save and what is in the best interest of our species. Realizing what is in our best interest is no longer an optional extra. It's do or die. And finally, the last lesson is in inaction. Firstly, we're learning how many of our activities were actually non-essential. We're learning about how all those meetings really could have been emails. We're learning about how maybe our digital revolution needs to be taken a step further. But more importantly, however, what the lockdown and the revitalization of nature has taught me is that nature is far, far greater so much more stronger and incredibly more resilient than we have been giving it credit for. Just a tiny moment of rest and it is able to undo decades of abuse. The technology that evolution has created is far superior to anything we can fathom, incredibly more nuanced and indeed capable of complexities that human beings are simply not. As the guest on my first episode of this podcast said, nature creates benefit for all without causing trouble for anyone. It might behoove us then to seriously consider whether the increasingly used phase, which goes, we are the virus, is actually true. Although I do not agree that homo sapiens per se are vile enough to be denigrated in such a way, I do believe, and this is the second part of what the instantaneous rejuvenation has taught me, is that our system of economics is fundamentally antithetical to nature. The virtuous cycle as modern economists explain it is based on the understanding that the more we produce the more we consume the more we earn the more we spend the more we produce and so on and so forth but the way our systems are designed will ensure that the more we produce the more we extract natural resources the more we consume the more we pollute the more we spend the more we abuse the precious resources that we are fortunate enough to have. Modern economics and indeed capitalism is based on the premise of infinite resources, and for that reason it is faulty at its very core. This bear in mind does not mean that we completely disregard the very real benefits of incentivizing human innovation that have indubitably been a factor behind the growth of capitalism. But it does mean that we have to reevaluate our current system, Not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, not on the birth anniversary of Marx, but now, today. Covid and climate are the same crisis in many ways. Because at their core, they have both arisen out of an illegitimate exploitation of the world we live in. They are both inequitable at their core, are much more likely to have an adverse impact on those that did little to nothing to perpetuate the problem in the first place. But more importantly, they are both indicative of the incredible interconnectedness of our species. How one half-cooked bat in a medium-sized province of China could lead to panic and devastation in hundreds of countries in the blink of an eye is a testament to how dependent and inextricably woven the fabrics of all our lives are. Borders could not stop Corona and they will do little to deter the onslaught of the climate crisis. We have to realize that we're all in this together. One of the most special things about human beings is the ability to plan for the future. It is truly one of the few things that separates us, our species, from the rest of the billion species out there. We are individually neither the fastest nor the strongest. We aren't capable of flight, of swimming across extensive lengths. We can't survive in extreme heat or cold. We can't live without a regular supply of food, water and sleep. Our lungs can at best hold air for a few minutes before we need another big gulp of air to keep us going. In so many ways, we are weak and considerably inferior to countless species. What separates us then, the reason we are what we are today, is an ability to collectively look towards a better future. The thing that makes Homo sapiens so incredible is the ability to plan for the future and the ability to do it together. In many ways, our lives have devolved into repeated performances of selfish acts meant only to please us in the very short term. We are becoming increasingly more individualistic, and although we can be made aware of the damaging effects of our actions, we rarely let those have any effect on us. Why else would we continue to dig up the earth for oil, use the produce that we derive from the death of forests, eat the meat meat of animals which we know to be hugely polluting, despite knowing how damaging all of those acts are? We do it only because in the moment, those things feel so good. In doing so, however, we are letting go of the very same things that made our species thrive. As, gov- as the government stutters through finding its way to deliver food and in-session supplies, NGOs in some states of the country are actually feeding more people than the government is entertainers are performing for free, comedians are raising money to give to charities, even big corporations who I otherwise detest are stepping up and offering free services in these unprecedented times. As I look around, well not literally, I'm at home, don't worry, but as I look around, I see scores of individuals go out and help people in need, much like we have always seen in the times of calamity. We're seeing doctors, nurses, sanitation workers, food and service delivery executives, NGOs and civil society organisations day in and day out fighting for the safety of people who for all intents and purposes are complete strangers to each other. In times of great uncertainty and distress, the spirit of human kindness always fights the good fight. It will always find a way to triumph, even in the most dire circumstances. All I ask of you then is that the climate crisis be dealt with with just as much seriousness, as if our lives depended on it. Because, quite frankly, they absolutely do. To those of you who have managed to reach this far in the podcast, thank you so, so much. You obviously love me very much, or you generally enjoyed the show. In both cases, I owe you one. And I want to do something for you. I want to give you the best podcast experiencing that I can give you. So tell me how I can do that. Tell me how I can make my podcast better. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what I'm doing right. Tell me what you'd like to hear more of. Tell me what you'd like to hear less of. If you like something, if you dislike something, if you have any views or criticisms at all, let me know. I would love to hear from you. You can write to me at my personal email. That's Gorpade at gmail.com that's m-a-i-t-r-e-y-a dot g-h-o-r-p-a-d-e at gmail.com you can also find me on instagram or you can write to my page on instagram which is at the green project i hope to hear from you soon thank you